chapter 12, and as I was saying, this message is a tough one, and i got to hand it to anybody that had the nerve to come out to such a title. Uh, but how many of you realize that we're in a spiritual war, especially in the United States of America? The enemy is always seeking whom he may devour. Amen? Ephesians 2, verse 2 Satan is the prince of the power of the air currently. Amen? And as I've always taught my students, Satan is not going to come into your bedroom at night with slime coming out of his mouth, horns on his head, pitchfork in his hand, and go, Okay? It's not how Satan operates. Satan is a tricky one. And he is deluding the church of Jesus Christ today in many ways. How many of you have heard of A.W. Tozer? Okay, a lot of people like to quote A.W. Tozer. He's great, but I noticed that we miss a lot of his quotes, which are a little bit more hard-hitting. And before I pray, I want to share with you something that A.W. Tozer said and see if this resonates with your heart, okay? He said, if you put chains on a man's ankles and wrists, and he knows it, okay? You put chains on someone, they're going to realize the chains are there. Look deep into his eyes, and you'll find there the sullen revolt of the free human spirit against the bonds of slavery, right? You put chains on somebody, man, they're going to try to get those chains off. But conditioning the mind creates a slave who doesn't know it. Amen? We are constantly being fed harmful ideas that we adopt and learn to believe in, thinking they are all right, and so we ignorantly follow This is done without our knowing that a keen, sharp, unscrupulous mind is seeking to control us. Amen? And that is the truth. That is what the devil is doing. Then A.W. Tozer goes on to say, if you could suddenly stand off objectively and look at your mind and see how much the media has fed into it and how you have come to be more or less a creature influenced by the media, you would be shocked and spend days in fasting and prayer to get away from it. And that would be the premise of this message tonight, what Jesus is going to show us. I really do believe that we in the church of Jesus Christ have really succumbed to the culture. Within the church, we've come to believe what the culture believes about what we have, about what we need, and about what our priorities are. Amen? So this is going to be a hard one, but we're all going to, we're all going to hear it the same way, and God spoke to me uh, about it first, I promise you. So I want us to pray. I, first of all, I want to thank so many of you for turning out. I want to thank, how many people here tonight are from Penn Hills Alliance? Yeah, we got our Penn Hills friends here, so thank you guys for coming out. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening, and I'm really asking for your grace to be upon us. Lord, I pray that you would cleanse me and cleanse each one of us from our sin, that we might be able to hear you as you want us to hear you. Please, Holy Spirit, be in this room, helping us to take in the truth that you are presenting. Allow us to be comforted where we need comfort and corrected where we need corrected. We bring ourselves to you, Lord, and pray that you would open up your word. And we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 12, and the actual message is going to come from a section towards the middle of the chapter, but context is very important, and in this chapter, context is essential. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through some chunks of things that Jesus is saying in the chapter before we get to the actual piece that I want to study. Because as you understand what he was saying, you begin to get the gravity of the mistake that a man makes in asking Jesus a particular question. All right? So Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the context of this whole chapter is Jesus has been chastising the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going around saying, you guys try to look like you are so good on the outside, but inside you are dirty and filthy and wrong. Now, how many of you know that we all do that? Anybody go to church on a Sunday morning and pretend to be who you really are? Or do you go look in your best? Okay, so Jesus said, look, you're like washing the outside of the cup. It's like you go to Eaton Park and you order a coffee and the outside of the cup looks shiny. And I swear, every time we go out to eat, my mom gets a dirty coffee cup. Either that or she's OCD. Send it back. The cup is dirty, okay? It looks shiny on the outside, but you look inside and there's old crusty stuff in there. Jesus actually told the Pharisees, that's what you guys are like. So he's chastising the Pharisees saying, you try to look good on the outside, but inside you're just a complete rotten mess. And I think that crowds probably liked to hear somebody actually stand up and tell the truth to somebody. You know? Because the Bible is going to show us in the context of him saying all this rough stuff to the Pharisees, a huge crowd gathered. I think sometimes in the church we're afraid that people don't want the truth. We better cushion it. We better sugarcoat it, right? Jesus didn't do that. And crowds listened to him. So here's what happens. So he's chastising the Pharisees. And the Bible says in the middle of that, in the meantime, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. Okay? So he's telling the Pharisees that they are hypocrites. And thousands of people have now come together, so much so that they're trampling on each other. This is a huge, huge crowd. And Jesus begins to speak to his disciples first. Now, when in the whole scheme of this chapter he turns from his disciples and opens it up to the whole crowd, we don't exactly know. But we know this. There were no partitions in the room. There was no sound system. So when he's talking to his disciples, obviously everybody can hear. Amen? But he's homing in on the disciples, and this is what he says to them. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the first thing that struck me in that is, you know, when the disciples were watching Jesus chastise the Pharisees, they were probably thinking, good for you, Jesus, those dirty, rotten scoundrels. We know what they're like. And they were probably like, yeah, you go for it. Then Jesus turns around and he says, by the way, you be careful of the exact same thing. Amen? So, point number one, in the church of Jesus Christ, we who are his followers, we who are Christians, are in the same possible danger as the Pharisees. Amen? We've got to watch ourselves. Jesus wouldn't tell them to be wary if there wasn't a reason to be wary. He said, beware of that same leaven, which is hypocrisy. How many of you know that hypocrisy could possibly be a problem in the church? Just a little bit, okay? So Jesus said, watch that leaven, watch that poison. There's going to be a tendency for you to be hypocritical, for you to pretend that you are something that you're not on the inside. Amen? 
for you to pretend to say something that you're not on the inside. Then Jesus gives this hard-hitting truth. He says nothing. Now check this out. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. I want to shake my head to that verse. Like if somebody else were up here preaching and I were sitting there, I'd be going, yeah. And then all of a sudden I'd be going, yeah. Okay? Listen, this is hard-hitting. Jesus looks at his disciples, and he wasn't being exactly seeker-friendly. He goes, hey, guys, uh, beware of being a hypocrite. He goes, because I want you to know something. There is absolutely not one word, not one thought, not one deed that you do in your home, that you do on your computer by yourself, that you do with the best of your friends, that you do wherever with a certain crowd and not with another. There isn't even a thought that happens within the confines of my own skull that won't be made known. Isn't that scary? So it's not just the stuff that I do that most other people can't see. It's the stuff that I even think in my mind that you don't know about. It's not hidden. Is that a scary thought or what? Does that wake us up spiritually? So Jesus is saying, look, I want you to know something as a fact. Be careful. You can become hypocritical. Number two, I want you to know that there is not a word, not a thought, not a deed. Nothing in secret of anybody that is going to be covered up. It will all be shown before Jesus Christ. You want a couple of scriptures to corroborate that? There's Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the what? The thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So even if I end up doing the right thing, which is good, But my intentions were wrong. Jesus even knows that. And then this crazy verse. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things, everything is open and laid absolutely bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do or with whom we have to give account. So Jesus is speaking very seriously here. And through the course of our day, as we go through our hurried lives and we never calm down long enough to even be alone or think about what we're doing, we need to stop and realize this. Everything. We're accountable for everything. Romans 2.16, Paul was talking about that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the what of men? Yeah, he judges the secrets. You know, God is going to judge me for how I taught and how I preached the Bible, but he's going to judge Shelley Prindle for her secrets. This is serious stuff, isn't it? So if I'm Jesus' disciple, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like getting lower and lower in my seat. I'm thinking, wow, he is serious, man. He's getting down to the nitty-gritty. This is some rough stuff that Jesus is talking about. So then we go into the next chunk. So right after that dissertation on hypocrisy, no secrets, everything open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account to, then Jesus goes into another topic. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing that they can do. Now, in other words, Jesus is saying, basically, by telling us not to fear when this happens, he is establishing the fact that people are going to kill your body. And he's telling us that that's not the worst thing that can happen to a person, isn't he? 
I heard a preacher the other day, I forget who it was on Word FM, uh, was quoting uh, maybe Elliot, Jim Elliot, uh, something like this. The, fra- the, the quote was something to the effect, we're spending so much time t- trying to pray saints out of heaven, like everybody's sick and we pray all the time, heal them, keep them on the earth longer, and even when we know they're saved and they're going to glory, we spend more time praying saints out of heaven or, than we do Spending time praying for souls to be kept out of hell. Right? And Jesus is saying, look, spend more time worrying about what happens with a person's soul than their body. Now, does that mean I don't pray for my physical health? Are you kidding me? My struggle with my disease, all the things. Yes, we pray about those things, but that's not the most important thing I pray about for me. Amen? Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. And after that, they have nothing more than they can do. He's kind of like saying, because that isn't the worst thing. But to us in America, we feel like that's the worst thing, you know. Some little new symptom crops up and we're crying like a baby. I discovered I think I have trigger finger in my thumb yesterday, honestly. After my bout with frozen shoulder, I'm like, whoa! And, and God caught me, you know what I'm saying? Shelly, live for something bigger. Now watch what Jesus says. He says, but I warn you whom to fear. See, the thing I like about this is we think, oh, God sets us free from all fear. He does as long as we fear the one we should. God doesn't set you free from all fear. He sets you free from all wrong fear. There is a fear that people should have, and we don't have enough of it. And and that's a fear of God. He says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, exclamation point. So Jesus, who is so famous for telling us never to fear, that's all we ever remember, actually tells us to fear, doesn't he? If you integrate your heart to fear God and God alone, you won't have to fear anything else. But you've got to fear God. And G- now listen, this is what keeps getting me, like as I was preparing this message, and I wish I could like put it in a banner across the sky. Like I wish I could grab you by the shoulders and shake you so you understand what I'm saying, you know, and I very well may because I've been known to do that. But I want you to understand, this is what Jesus actually said. Okay? This is what Shelley Prindle said. Jesus stood in front of his followers and said, You better have fear of God. More fear than you have of people that can kill your body. And you better fear Him so much because you recognize He has the power to cast your soul into hell or to take you to heaven. Amen? All right? So, when I think of that, I think of people like William Tyndale. How many of you have ever heard of William Tyndale? Okay? Amazing man. Who at a a rather young age was a martyr for Jesus Christ. Here's what he did. He felt that God had called him to translate the Greek New Testament from the original language into English. He was so sick and tired of the church at that time holding the Bible captive to only those with a high education, only those who were higher ups in the church could read the Latin, could read the Greek and understand the Bible. And they were holding it over everybody else's head. And William Tyndale is famous for having looked at a person in high church authority, looked at him across the table. This guy was arguing with him about what he was trying to do. And Tyndale looked at him in the face and he said, you know what? 
if God spares my life, I will see to it that a plow boy, a boy working in the farm, has more knowledge of the scriptures than you do. Amen? And he did. And though he was hunted down for it, and eventually they took William Tyndale to a stake, they strangled him, and they burned his body because he refused to fear the one who could kill the body and feared God who had called him to translate the scriptures more. Amen? Now, by God's mercy... Any of us who were called to give our lives for Jesus Christ would be able to do the same. Wouldn't we? By God's grace? If ISIS were to sweep into America tomorrow by some strange method, they were to walk in here tomorrow and they were to require that you recant your faith in Jesus Christ or you die by the sword, would you remember these words? Would you remember that Jesus is saying to you, do not fear the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who has the power over your soul. Amen? It's coming close. And it's necessary to understand. Bishop John Hooper, who was martyred shortly after Tyndale, is famous for saying this, life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is sweeter and eternal death is more bitter. Amen? Okay. Now, this is a hard message. What I'm trying to get you to see is, what is Jesus talking about here? Man, he says, be careful. You could turn out just like the Pharisees. Know this. There's not a thought in your head. There's not a word that you say. There's not a thing that you do, no matter how secret you think it is, that God doesn't know, and you are going to have to answer for it. Then he goes on to say, hey, guys, they're going to seek to kill you. Don't be afraid when they go to take your life. Fear God more than anything. And you're getting a feeling that this is like a pretty serious sermon Jesus is preaching, right? I can tell you're getting that feeling because everybody has a very serious look on their face. And that's good. Here's the next topic he goes to. You think, oh, it's going to get light at some point. You know what I mean? It has to be getting towards lunchtime here at this sermon. And certainly he's going to lighten up. So then he says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Watch this. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Wow. That's a rough one too, isn't it? When he speaks about angels here, the reason Jesus mentions the angels is whenever we hear of his second coming, like in Matthew 25, when he speaks of himself as the Son of Man returning in his glory to judge us, sitting on his glorious throne, he always speaks of coming with his angels with him. Could you imagine the Son of God returning with all his angels in his glory, and he looks at one particular person and says, Nope, you're not going with me. You don't belong. Remember how you denied me? You know what I'm saying? This is serious stuff. And I'm thinking, wow. Then he goes to verse 10. And it gets even rougher. Everyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man is going to be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, on top of all this, Jesus, now you're telling us there's some sin that we actually can't even be forgiven for? Now, of course, I don't want to go into a big dissertation about the unpardonable sin, but blaspheming the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, for my biblical studies, is you are pushing away and purposely reviling and refusing the only person, the third person of the Trinity, who can get through to your heart and push you towards Jesus Christ. Amen? 
the only one who can convict you and get you to where you need to be. So if you continue to push him away and revile him and harden your heart, eventually there's going to be a point where you don't hear him anymore. It's not that he's not calling, right? So Jesus says, hey, on top of all this I've just told you, now there's something you've got to be very careful of. Do not blaspheme. Do not revile. Do not push away the Holy Spirit when he speaks to your heart. Amen? That's why one of the most dangerous places to continue to be if you're not going to respond is in a pew every Sunday morning. If you hear the truth over and over and over again and you refuse to respond to the Holy Spirit, you're in a very dangerous position. Very dangerous position. So Jesus is really getting heavy hitting here. So there's one more thing that he brings up and we think, is he going to lighten it up at this point? This has been a pretty rough sermon for these guys. Nope. He says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Okay, so now he's telling us we are definitely for sure going to be brought before the rulers and authorities because of our relationship with you, God, and there's a possibility that we would be anxious about it, but we're not supposed to be. You with me? So it's getting even worse now. Okay? Don't worry, though, he says, about how you're going to defend yourself or what you should say. And by the way, this is a verse not for preachers or teachers of the Word of God, but for people who are about to be martyred. Okay? It's not saying, don't worry about what you should say. Just get up there, pray, and say whatever you want. All right? He's talking about when that moment comes and you need God to be there for you, He will be there. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, so let's review. What kind of sermon has this been so far? What would you guys describe it as? It's been pretty rough. This is serious life or death stuff. Don't be a hypocrite. Everything's going to be exposed. You can't get away with anything. You're going to have to answer before God. It's possible that you could push away the Holy Spirit to a point where you can't even respond to Him anymore. So you better take the Holy Spirit seriously. You are going to be brought before people and have to give your body for my sake. But don't... Fear those people. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell, right? You're going to be brought before authorities, and you're going to have to speak in my name. Don't deny me. Don't refuse me. Because if you refuse me, I will refuse you. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, this is, this is a lot for me. Is it a lot for you? I, I, how can I live this one sermon for five minutes? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, what? So I'm reading the Bible this one day. I'm at home, you know, and my brain, I know, works oddly, but I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading the Sermon of Jesus, you know, and I'm reading all and I'm thinking, and sweat's like on my forehead. I'm thinking, man, I am really convicted here. And in light of how the world's going and the persecution that's growing, you know what I mean? It could be very, very soon that we preachers are put in jail for what we're saying. And I'm sitting here thinking, whoosh. You know, and some of the wrong thoughts and motives I have in my heart, and it's all so ugly, and I'm feeling convicted. There's like sweat pouring down my forehead, and I'm thinking, okay, then in verse 13, some guy, don't look at it yet. I don't want you to beat me to the punch. Some guy is in this crowd listening to this sermon, and he's going to ask a question. And I'm like, wow, what deep and profound and convicting question is this guy going to ask in the middle of this? Who would interrupt Jesus to ask a question at this point? Okay? Some nutcase in the back raises his hand in the middle of this sermon, right in this context, right in this sermon, okay? And he goes, hey, Jesus, 
Tell my brother to give me some more of the money. What? I, I read this. I was like, is that really what the Bible says? Some guy in the crowd, while he was teaching all those things, said, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What? Are you nuts? What kind of idiot is this guy? Have you not been listening to the kind of stuff Jesus is talking about? I'm sitting. I mean, really, what kind of nutcase is in the back? Is he not paying attention to these life and death, soul and spirit issues? You want more money from your brother? It's not like we're dealing with six and seven-year-olds here. Now, before we go any further, let me just say that Bible scholars don't know for sure. You know, maybe this guy was the second born. And according to the law, the firstborn got double the inheritance. Maybe he, you know, maybe his brother was purposely withholding something from him that he should have had, and he rightly did deserve it, and he wanted Jesus to get it back for him. Maybe uh, he just wanted more than what was rightly his. Now, the only thing that I can tell you for sure is this guy was not poverty-stricken. Jesus is going to tell us that he was covetous. So that means he didn't need more of the inheritance. You with me? He wanted more of the inheritance. He's listening to Jesus talk about all this life and death stuff, and all he cares about is, hey, Jesus, could I use you, great teacher, or one with authority, to step in and try to get me some more money from my brother? You moron! And I'm like getting, I'm sitting there with my Bible, and I'm getting angry. And then the Holy Spirit, poof. Shelly. That's you. Listen, this is us. That man is us. He's me. He's you. Think about this. Jesus Christ is in the room right now saying the exact same things that I just outlined to you. Is the Word of God living and active? Is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? So you pick up your Bible, Luke chapter 12, you go home, you sit in your living room, you read it, you go out by the, you know, in, in your lawn, you sit on a picnic blanket, you read the scriptures, we talk about it in here. It's the exact same thing. Jesus is saying the exact same thing. You know what he's saying to you and me? Hey, Shelly, there's nothing about you that is not an open book before me. Wise up. Watch yourself. Hey, Shelly, when they call you to account, never deny me. Hey, Shelly, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of a sin, you better respond to me right away. You better not push me away. Hey, Shelly, you know, he's saying those things to me. He's saying the same very serious things. And so when we come together for prayer between friends or we pray before a meeting or we have a prayer meeting, you know, let me ask you a question. For what are we regularly praying? You know, my hangnail is really bothering me today. You know, could you pray? Could you pray for this? Could you pray for that? And I'm thinking of all, and not that we shouldn't pray for little things. Don't get me wrong. But where is the right balance? If I believed the sermon that Jesus just preached in Luke 12, I would be praying this, you know, instead of praying. Let me just tell you how convicted I am by this. So Jeff and I have been in the same house for over 15 years. We finally broke down and got rid of the uh, pink carpeting. It's not in anymore. And we scheduled this carpeting to be delivered, and I won't say who's installing it, but 
it's been delayed two and three times. Okay, so now, you know, the new furniture's there, the house has been painted, and the, the carpeting is still pink, and my nephews came and drew dead body outlines on it because, you know, that would be fun. And, and the carpeting's still not in, okay? And, 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 I, and I will tell you this. I have never, I, I was studying this while all that was going on. I never had the nerve. I just didn't have the nerve to pray. God, help my carpet to come and be installed. It's the dumbest thing in the world. You know, I did pray. God, help me to calm down. Help me to keep my priorities right. I didn't pray, please get my carpet in. And while I was preparing this sermon, a great wind came and blew the umbrella off of our picnic set in the backyard, blew it and broke it and snapped it. And I love to read and study my Bible out under that big umbrella. So Jeff's like, well, I said, we have other umbrellas in the shed. Can you get one out? So he got one out, and it happens to be bright blue. Clashes completely with the set of, you know, furniture I have there. I walked in my backyard, and I'm like, I look like some kind of redneck here. You know, my furniture doesn't match. And I stopped in my tracks, and I was like, oh, this is, what is wrong with me? My brothers and sisters are dying and have no food in Iraq and Iran and Syria. And I'm worried about my stupid umbrella matching my lawn furniture. And I went back into my house and I turned around and I got down on my knees and I prayed. God help me. God help my brothers and sisters in Christ. God make me the kind of Christian you want me to be and not some surface ridiculous person. Amen? Is there anything wrong with me getting new carpet in my house? No, not if God has provided. But if it becomes the important thing to me, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. It's like, it's me. Like, the, I'm raising my hand. Hey, Jesus, in light of all this, hey, um, you know, could you help the carpet people to come soon? What's wrong with you? How are we spending our free time? You know, Jesus is saying the same things to us today. And how are we spending our free time? I mean, even as adults, we can look at the kids and say, all they do is play video games. All they do is they're on their iPad. Yeah, well, all we do is sit and read the newspaper. All we do is sit and watch the news. We watch television. We manicure our lawns, don't we? Women, we redecorate, don't we? Jesus, could you uh, help me here with my, with my house redecoration? Could you help me here with, with what television program I want to watch, you know? We're the guy in the back raising our hand. In what are we really investing ourselves? This man on the screen to the left, his name, you can remember his name very easily, it's the opposite of Billy Joel. His name is Pastor Joel Billy, and he's from Nigeria. And he's standing in front of what used to be his church. That cross is purposely taken out there because Boko Haram the militant Islamic group makes it a point, no matter how fast they're trying to move in somewhere and persecute, they will purposely stop, no matter what it takes, to destroy any cross in their sight, even if they take out one piece like that. So that's what's left of his church. This happened in September over a year ago. And if you, on the right, that, that sign above that door says choir office. That's what's left. Boko Haram came in, set it aflame, destroyed everything. They took out bridges. They took out roads. In Nigeria, Boko Haram is just persecuting Christians like crazy, like right now as we're in this room, okay? So this pastor, Joel Billy, one Sunday morning last year, he, was, um, he addressed the children in his church. 
you know. And he prayed over them and he talked to them. And I think to myself, you know, we don't want to scare children unnecessarily, but, you know, we need to be kind of serious with our kids. I mean, Jesus, he's a pretty serious guy, right? So Pastor Joel Billy on a Sunday morning, knowing that Boko Haram was really ramping up in Nigeria, his, his church members continued to meet. And this is the day, this is what he said to the kids the morning that 40 church members were killed in an onslaught about an hour later, all right? So he's in his church, and this is what he says to them. He said, it is the plan of Boko Haram to come and drive us from our homes and from our churches. And if they do come here, never deny Jesus. If they kill your parents, never deny Jesus. If they take you away to Sambisa Forest, never deny Jesus Christ. And an hour later, 40 people were killed in that very church. And children were taken away. And what's the last thing the pastor said to them? Never deny Jesus Christ. You know, that's a pastor who gets the context of what Jesus is about. Amen? Amen. These are serious, serious times. Then there was a 34-year-old Christian woman who lost her husband and two sons to Boko Haram as well, and she happened to personally survive a machete wound to her arm and to her throat in the same attack. Lost her husband, two sons, machete to the throat and to the arm, okay? And they interviewed her. They went in and they interviewed her, and they said, if you could tell the Church of Jesus Christ across the world at large what to pray for, tell us what to pray for, okay? Now, if that's Shelley Prindle, okay, I have a very low tolerance for pain. I'm going to be praying, this is me, Jesus, um, could you please help my throat to feel better? Because this machete wound is pretty rough. Okay, could you please help my arm to feel better? Could you please provide a home for me and my kids? Could you please do this for me? Could you please do that for me? And it's so funny how when God brings you down to nothing, you suddenly realize what's important. Amen? Amen? And the devil just loves that in America we have absolutely everything. Because we don't have any clue what's important. You know what this woman said? In a voice weakened by her injury and with her surviving 11-year-old by her side, she asked for prayers to raise her son in God's way. But still sensing her greatest need, she also asked, pray that I will hold on to Christ with both hands. I'm thinking... If that were me, I'm probably thinking to myself, well, Jesus, you just let one of my arms be injured. Now I'm talking about let me hold on with both. Like, these are people who've lost everything because of their stand for Jesus. And you know what they're asking for? Let me stand more for Jesus. And what do we pray for? I'm talking about myself here, right? What do we pray for? For comfort, for peace. So this guy who raises his hand and we think he's crazy and says, tell my brother to give me more of the money. He's really me. He's really you. I mean, we're pretty superficial sometimes in the middle of what Jesus is actually saying to us. Are we not? Amen? He gives us blessings to enjoy, but never to take over our relationship with him and the importance of what he's saying. And so here's how, so to finish this message, what I want to show you is how does Jesus respond to this guy? You know, what's Jesus going to say? Because if it were me, (laughs) if it were me and I was Jesus, what would you want to do to this guy? 
I would want to jump over all the people in front of him and go back there and wring his neck. You dummy, don't you understand what's going on here? Here's what Jesus says. He looks at him and he asks him the most curious question. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? What? What? Does anybody find that question to be odd other than me? Why is it an odd question? Because Jesus is our judge and arbitrator. You know what I mean? Uh, Jesus is very intriguing, is he not? So much wiser than us that we can't even understand this question sometimes, you know? So he goes, who made you a judge? Uh, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, this is not, he's not referring to this fact, okay? The Bible is very clear. He give you many examples of John chapter 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Amen? When I die, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. All people are going to answer to Jesus. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So is Jesus telling a lie here? No. It's the context. What Jesus is essentially looking at that guy and saying is, My purpose in coming to this earth the first time is not to take over the court of law so that you can get more money for yourself. Uh, That's not what I'm about. Right? I'm not the arbitrator in the court of law for your personal little, you want more money from your brother. That's not what I'm here for. Now, I love what the great commentator Matthew Henry says about this particular remark. He says that what Christ is really trying to get at in this statement are the following things. First of all, it's saying that Christ does not interfere with civil powers nor take authority of princes out of their hands. Amen? When Jesus came and they tried to arrest him in the garden, didn't he tell Peter, keep going with that sword, Petey. Let's take out the Roman authority so I don't have to go to the cross. What did he say? Put your sword away, right? Let things progress as they're supposed to progress. Jesus did not come the first time to take over the political government, right? Or the court system. That's not why he came the first time. Uh, when, the, when the disciples were worked up about Caesar, he said, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay? There's coming a day. Amen. Hallelujah. Who cannot wait for the day when Jesus takes over the government? And the government shall be upon his shoulders and the prince of peace will reign amen that day's coming but that wasn't then see christ was also trying to say in this statement that he does not encourage now look at this wow he does not encourage our expectations of worldly advantages because of our religion boy that's popular preaching isn't it if you're a christian you should be prosperous and healthy and wealthy and successful Never once in the Word of God did Jesus say that was so. He said the opposite. He said the opposite. Jesus was trying to look at that guy and say, Look here, you shouldn't expect me to get you more money for your personal bank account. I'm trying to get you rewards that you can't even conceive of. Amen? You talk about inheritance. Tell my brother to give me more of the inheritance. Hey, I don't really care about the more of the 401k. Do you know what I want? I want more of the reward that's up there where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. Amen? 
Okay? Jesus was trying to get this guy to see that he does not encourage, this is wild, contests with our brothers or us being rigorous and high in our demands. How many people, how many of us think we're so entitled to so much? How dare that waitress not treat me right? Why are you so rigorous and high in your demands that everybody bow down and worship me? Do you know what I mean? We want what we want, and we want it now. And I want this, and I want that, and you better treat me this way, and you better talk to me that way. You better shake my hand the right way. You better smile at me the right way. Hey, Jesus said, I didn't come. It's not your purpose as a Christian to, like, demand so much of people. Amen? It's your purpose to be satisfied in Christ, right? So Jesus was was addressing something with this man, and I will say this. To this day, right now in this room, Jesus stands by Matthew 6.33. He said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What things? Everything you need to live. Shelter, food, clothing. Jesus said, never, 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 never make stuff your priority. Never. You make me your priority. And what you need will follow. Amen? So Jesus stands by that statement. Stuff is secondary always, hands down. That's what he's trying to get that guy to see. Then, he noticed he switches from just addressing the man to going back out to the crowd because all the crowd has heard this crazy guy, right? And Jesus has got to deal with it. It's like when I'm teaching a class, you know, and somebody, have you ever been in an uncomfortable situation? Somebody's teaching and someone in the class asks the most ridiculous question. And you're like... How's she going to answer that one? You know what I mean? So now Jesus is going to have to address everybody else. And he said to them, watch this. This is extremely convicting in Christian America. Because I'm here to tell you something. Never in the Bible is it spoken of something called the American dream. What? Watch this. Jesus said, take care. Twice. He says, first of all, take care. In other words, be careful. Listen to me. And be on your guard. And that word guard, has, that's actually derived from a military term. Like march around and be on guard. That's how serious he is. Take care and actually be on your guard. Walk around your life. Keep it in your mind. Keep it sealed up. Be on your guard against all what? Covetousness. The I want more attitude. And it doesn't just apply to money. In America, I want more money, I want a bigger house, I must have three cars, 500 garages. I love that. My husband would like 500 garages, but not for the cars. Okay, he just likes stuff. So, we, I want a bigger house, I want more cars, I want more money. Watch this. In America, we want the perfect body, right? Got to go to the gym, got to take care of the body, because, you know, the body is really, really important. Got to have many degrees behind my name, because then people will look up to me more, Right? Jesus says, watch this, he said, now this is Jesus speaking, not Shelley Prindle. This is Jesus Christ, your Savior. The one who died for your sins said this, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. How many Christians really believe that? You know what we do with rich people? We put them on the board of directors, don't we, for corporations, for companies. Why? Because they're rich people. They must be smart. They must be important because they're rich. We elect them to offices, don't we? Because they're rich. 
We want them to sit at our table. Why? Because they're wealthy. I mean, they're important, right? Jesus said, no. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And I've really been convicted by this recently. And I've looked around. And some of the most wonderful, godly people I know are in the lowest social strata I'm familiar with. That can be true. It can also be true that godly people are wealthy. Don't get me wrong, but watch this. How many of you have ever heard of Dr. Paul David Tripp? A well-respected Bible teacher, okay? Can't go wrong with Paul David Tripp. He's not out there anywhere. He's solid as a rock. Here's what he said. This is a recent Facebook post he put out there. He said, to make matters worse, our culture assumes that something is wrong with us if we're content with what we own and aren't constantly looking for bigger and better. Amen? I was upset because my umbrella didn't match my furniture and everybody up and down the street has matching furniture. Really, that's why. I had to get rid of my pink carpet because, heaven forbid, everybody's talking about how pink carpet went off 20 years ago. They assume that something's wrong with us, okay? We've grown so accustomed to this message of acquiring that we don't even realize the extent to which we define ourselves by the created world. We don't even realize anymore. You name it, a home, a second home, a car, a second car, a widescreen TV, an in-the-ground pool, a game room, the newest Apple product, or even just a well-manicured lawn, it's nearly impossible to not be defined by your stuff or lack thereof. Is that true? How many of you feel the weight of that even as a Christian? I do. I mean, I'm telling you, every neighbor around me has a lawn service coming in. I'm not getting into Scott's lawn service. I don't care. I like my crabgrass. And Jeff digs it out very well in his days off, okay? While these possessions can be used for hospitality and generosity, watch this. While they can be used for hospitality and generosity, oftentimes our purchases are not motivated primarily by the kingdom of God. Amen? When we got our new couch, which doesn't, we don't have our new furniture, we got a sectional couch. Do you know why I wanted to get a sectional couch? Because one thing that has always made me sad is I can't have many people in my home talking at the same time. There was no space to sit. Okay, so I'm motivated by I want people to be able to come together in fellowship and talk. And many of you may have done something in your home for that same kind of reason. But if I'm just getting a big sectional couch because, you know, that's what everybody has and you have to have a big sectional couch or when they come in your house, they'll look down on you. Hey, I've had pink carpet for 20 years. I don't care what people think. Okay, so here's what Paul David Tripp asked. What do your most recent transactions expose about your heart? Because another thing that happened to me while I was preparing for this sermon, I was sitting at my favorite restaurant, Wendy's, drinking an iced tea, was reading this, and I took a break, and I read World Magazine, and I was reading about Dr. Joel, or Pastor Joel Billy, and it was reading in there that Voice of the Martyrs, that organization, missionary organization, pays the hospital bills of people like that 34-year-old woman who otherwise would lose her arm and probably die of her wound. She has no resources, so Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors, organizations like that, go in and pay for hospital bills. And right there in the middle of Wendy's, God struck my heart and said, Shelly, I know you're getting a new carpet and everything, but time to transfer some money over to Voice of the Martyrs. Right? Isn't that what God does? 
That's what, that's what this is about, okay? So one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Now, here's a hard-hitting scripture to go with that, James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, okay? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You know, uh, if we take Jesus at his word that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, then we would respect and love the poorest among us as much as we respect and love the most successful and wealthy among us. Amen? And how many of us do that? There's an aversion. There's often an aversion there. And Jesus goes on, and this is the end now. So he tells them a parable to seal the deal. He tells them a parable saying, the land of a rich man, rich man produced plentifully. Now here's what I want to say to this. Number one, we're going to find out in a minute this, this rich man was not saved, and he was actually a fool. But his land produced plentifully. Just because somebody has much does not necessarily mean God has blessed them. Amen? And just because somebody has little does not mean that God has not blessed them. Do you see that? This rich, unsaved fool had a land that produced plentifully. Riches do not mean or equal blessings necessarily, correct? Many times I think the devil wants us to have stuff to keep us distracted and to keep us a slave to work, 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 bring money in, bring money in, bring money in, got to have more, 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 and we are highly distracted, okay? So watch this. Jesus is saying this now. He says, and this rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, this is an interesting question. So the guy has so much, his land has produced so much, that he can't even find a place to store it anymore. All right? So he says, what shall I do? And you think, well, the guy's response is going to be, well, if I have that much, maybe I should share it with some people. What shall I do? Shall I help the church down the street build a new building? Shall I give to the poor? Shall I share with my family members who don't have that much? Because, I mean, I have so much, I don't even have anywhere to store it. And I want you to know something. We in America, if we have a tiny house and one television set and enough to eat, we're considered rich compared to the rest of the world. So if I'm sitting in my small little house with my television set and all the stuff that I need at my fingertips, And I say, what shall I do? The answer better be, help my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Amen. Push the gospel forward. Amen. But here's the answer. Instead of what shall I do, I better give some away. Here's what he says. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Wow, you're a smart guy. And that's what we do. I'll just build a bigger house. I'll get a bigger car. I'll get more stuff. I'll get a bigger bank account. Now watch this because it gets worse. And I will say to my soul, soul, 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And in two statements, we have this term I and my used eight times. See that? That's a very selfish person. But here's what I want you to see. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Now relax, retire, and have fun. Okay? Now, first of all, if you're going to talk to your soul, and I talk to myself, let me talk to yourself. I've told you this before. I even hold talk shows with myself. I'm the host and the guest. Okay? I do. I do this to work. But if you're going to talk to your soul, use Psalm 103. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all your iniquities, who healeth all your diseases, who redeemeth your life from destruction, who crowneth you with loving kindness and tender mercies, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen? If you're going to talk to your soul, use Psalm 103, not this chump's uh, advice. Because here's what he says. He says, I have so much stored up. I have so much for like all my retirement years that from here on out, I'm just going to retire, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that a good plan? (laughs) Bad plan. Never assume. Never, ever, 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 ever assume. How many of you have learned that in life? The very thing you assume is the very thing that's not going to happen, right? So assume the thing you don't want to happen and then the right thing. No, okay. So never assume and keep perspective. Psalm 39. Oh, Lord, hey, this is a good prayer to pray. If you've never been to this passage of Scripture, read this this week and meditate on it. Oh, Lord, this is what David said. Make me know my end. How many people pray that? Get up in the morning. Oh, Oh, weather looks good today. Going to be a nice day out there. God, help me remember I'm going to die soon. Right, Deborah? Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how doggone fleeting I am. Because I have an awfully big head. And I tend to think I'm going to be around forever. And I'm not, I, can't even believe, I can't even believe I'm 46 years old. What? And I keep saying, Fifty, I'll never reach fifty. Okay, listen. Wake up every morning and say to God, remind me that my end is coming. Amen? A lot of people think, well, that's depressing. No. I preached a sermon once on a Sunday morning here called Pondering the End to Engage the Present. If you want to really live, remember that you're going to die. Then you'll start to live. Okay, because you'll live for the right things. And David said, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetimes is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Look at this. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who's going to gather it. You know, all those long days at work and all that frustration, trying to bring in all that stuff and all that money. When you go to die... Bye-bye. Hope you had fun working for all that stuff. You ain't never going to see it again. That's some good Bible preaching. 
Do you have to work to provide for your needs? Yes. The Bible says that a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. I'm not saying that people shouldn't work, but here's what I'm saying. Don't scrape and work and press so hard in turmoil and misery and pain to get stuff that is going to disappear. Amen? Amen. But the world tells you to. Never assume. Keep perspective. Psalm 49. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he can carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. You know the old saying, never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Right? For though while he lives... Now, this is real. This is real Bible truth. Watch this. While he lives, he counts himself blessed. You know? People do this, you know? We get something new. You know, after, after I got my new car, I just love to drive it around. You see my car shiny? You know? People get new stuff. They paste it all, all over Facebook. Everybody, their new, big, fancy stuff. We're all excited. I mean, I was going to wear these shoes, and I'm like, man, I got new Nikes, you know? Oops, I turned off the PowerPoint because of that. Um, and we count ourselves blessed while we're alive because we have all this stuff. And watch this. It even gets worse. You get praise when you do well for yourself. You got a promotion. You got a raise. Good girl. Yeah, for you. When's the last time you walked up and somebody said, your prayer life increased? Good for you, buddy. We don't do that. You got a new car? Oh, man, that's awesome. You grew closer to Jesus last month because of your trial? Amen. What do we do? You know what I'm saying? Now watch this. His soul will go down to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, in his braggadocious, thinking he's so great because of what he has, is like if he doesn't have understanding with his riches, he's like a beast that dies. Like an animal. I didn't say that. God said it. Matthew Henry said about this passage, pain and sickness of body, disagreeableness of relations, and especially a guilty conscience can rob a man of his ease, even if he has all the wealth in the world. Amen? So he said, soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And I want to end with this last phrase. Eat, drink, and be merry. I thought, that's an interesting phrase. Where else is that in the Bible? It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking of the resurrection from the dead. And you know how there are people who will say, well, even if God isn't real... Even if there's no afterlife, if I've served God and there is no resurrection from the dead and there's no heaven, then I'm still glad that I served God. It was worth it. Paul would not agree with you. He would say that unless there's a resurrection from the dead and a new heavens and a new earth, living for God is not worth it. Okay? The resurrection from the dead by Jesus Christ is the cornerstone which this thing is built. Okay? Now watch this. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks about these beasts at Ephesus. He means these persecutors of him and the faith, these, these men that were like dogs that came against him. And he said this, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And I think he would add this too. What do I gain if I've been through storms, I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned? What do I gain if I give my life, nearly lose my life all the time for God? If the dead are not raised, look at this, If the dead don't really raise from the dead, then let us what? Eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. 
So I've got to ask you a question. Under what circumstances would a person adopt the attitude to eat, drink, for tomorrow we die? Celebrate, live it up now, because tomorrow we die. Under what circumstances? Only a person who doesn't believe in what? The resurrection from the dead. And when I get in trouble, if I like stood on the pew right now and said this, when I die, my body's coming out of the ground. Amen? I stand on that truth because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and He's the first fruits of those who have died. Amen? And you have got, listen to me, you have got to believe that your hope and your reward is in the next life. Amen? If you believe it's here, if you don't really believe in the resurrection from the dead, you're going to accumulate and do everything you can in this life to get everything you can here and now. And you are not going to build the treasure there. And when that day comes, it's over. You with me? There's one other place in the Old Testament where that phrase was used in Isaiah 22. And this is very sad. Watch this. God's people had rebelled against him. They were not repenting. Assyria was coming in and invading. And the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, called you to weep and mourn. This is what God told them to do. He told you to shave your head in sorrow for your sins, to wear clothes of burlap, and to show your remorse. That's what God wanted you to do. Listen, there's a season for everything. Amen? There's a time and a place for everything. And it's not all happy-go-lucky in the Christian life. There's days when I need to get down on my knees and cry and repent for my sin. And God said, what I wanted you to do was weep and mourn, shave your head, get down on your knees and repent. Now watch this. But instead, you dance and play, you slaughter cattle and kill sheep, you feast on meat and drink wine, and you say, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what people do who don't really care that God has just confronted them with a sin problem. They say, ah, yeah, let's just get back to TV. Ah, let's go to the next party. Ah, let's do the next thing. And watch this. The Lord of Heaven's armies has revealed this to me. Till the day you die, you will never be forgiven for this sin. Why? You can't be forgiven when you don't repent. You've got to be sorry. You know what I'm saying? This isn't a cheap and easy gospel. You've got to repent for your sin. You can't be forgiven for something you don't repent of. And God, Jesus has presented us with this truth. Jesus ended by saying, you're a fool. He called that man a fool. This night your soul is required of you. Do you know fool means exactly what you think? A senseless, stupid person without reflection or intelligence. Not someone with a low IQ but somebody who doesn't ponder what's going on. He said, this night your soul is required of you. Required means to ask back. God gave you your soul, and one day you know what he's going to do? He's going to demand it back. And he's going to know, what did you do with your soul? Listen, what did you do with your soul? Not what did you do with your car, how many times did you wax it? Shelly, what kind of carpet did you pick for your house? That's not what God's going to ask me. How were those new Nike tennis shoes you bought, Shelly? No, that's not what he's going to ask me. He's going to say to me, Shelly, what did you do with your soul? Where was it with me? Where was it with the kingdom of God? He said, your soul is required of you. 
And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Remember when Jesus said this? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? So let's just say you gain everything in this life you want. You're as healthy and wealthy and as well off as you want to be. You do nothing about your soul. Then one day you die, okay? You enter eternity. And do you know what, what I'm going to get in eternity? The whole world. How many of you are getting the whole world? Who's a co-heir? You with me? Who's a co-heir with Jesus Christ? What does Jesus Christ get? He's what? He gets the whole what? The whole world. First Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to rule and reign with him. I am a joint heir. I am a sister of Jesus Christ my Lord. When I die, if I keep the continuity of my soul, if my soul belongs to him, I get the whole world. If I grab the whole world now and lose my soul, when I die, I get nothing. Nothing. Now, here's the last thing. He said, you're a fool. This, soul, your night's gonna, this, this night your soul is going to require of you. Everything you've worked for, whose will it be? And we think, oh, what a dummy. What a dummy was the rich fool. Do you know what Jesus then said? He said, so is the one. Okay? He didn't say, oh, this is a parable of a rich fool and this would never be you. He said, this is also the person, right? So is the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Amen? So we have a question to ask ourselves tonight, and that is, are we rich toward God? Because you know what Jesus said. He said, lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I find one thing interesting about that verse. He does not say where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. Isn't that interesting? You would think he'd say, well, if you love Jesus with all your heart, then your treasure is going to be in heaven. He didn't say it that way. He said, where you're actually putting your treasure shows where your heart is. Isn't that interesting? The Believer's Bible Commentary called this a radical financial policy and said, if your money's in a safe deposit box, then your heart and your desire are also there. If your treasures are in heaven, your interests will be centered there. This teaching forces us to decide whether Jesus actually meant what he said, right? Because listen... If he did, then we face the question, what are we going to do with our earthly treasures, right? And if he didn't say this, then we face the question, what am I going to do with my Bible? Because the Bible says that that's what he said. You see, this, this sermon has really gotten to me because I realized that I actually have to take Jesus at his word and it's going to hit my pocketbook. And it's going to hit my schedule. And it's going to hit my affections. Amen? I'm going to close with an A.W. Tozer quote. Now listen to this. Here's what he said. A true Christian has to say goodbye to the philosophies of the world and keeping up with the Joneses. The world makes us ashamed to wear a suit if it's not the latest model. Ashamed to drive a car that's not the latest. Ashamed to live in a house that's not the latest grotesque monstrosity. 
It makes us ashamed to be a little behind the times. But a man or a woman who's big enough to know that he is above all times is big enough to dare to live boldly where he pleases, in or out of style. Jesus never wore a garment that somebody did not make for him. He never owned anything that would have sold at auction, probably for more than a dollar and a half. And yet Jesus was the Lord of glory. And the riches of the world were his. He could have spoken to the stones and they would have been gold. He could have spoken to the trees and they would have turned to rich wheat bread. He could have spoken to the very air and it would have blown riches to him. But he walked calmly, quietly through the world and left only one garment behind him. If God gave you possessions, thank God for them. But break with the grip of the world's philosophy and make God everything. If God is everything to you, listen to this, if God is everything to you, you can have anything else and it will not hurt you. If God is little or nothing to you, anything will hurt you. Amen? Bow your heads with me for a minute. Oh, Lord Jesus, this evening, we need you so much because this is a rough section of Scripture. And God forbid that we are that man who raises his hand in the middle of all you said and has the nerve to say, Jesus, give me more of what my brother has. I want more money. I want more stuff. Want more status? God, please help us. We want to know our end. We want to know what is the measure of our days. And we want to lay up treasures in the heavens. Now, I know, God, that the devil himself will come against us with every tactic he possibly can to fully convince us that only what we see and touch in the world today is what matters. And the culture will so come against us. When we turn on the television, we see commercials. When we open a magazine, we see in glossy print. When we go to the mall, we see it in front of our faces. Everywhere we go, the world is crying out that life consists in the abundance of your possessions. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, said this. Be on your guard against all forms of covetousness because a man or a woman's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus, help us this evening to take you at your word. May we pray about what matters. May we live for what matters. May we read all of Luke chapter 12 and commit ourselves to you.